News. 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 New York City. F-A-Q. Map Man. Hey, welcome to FAQ NYC. I'm Harry Siegel. Professor Christina Greer is abroad living her best life. We're going to be talking today with Matt Man, Stephen Romaleski, about the census. We recorded this on Wednesday at about noon. By the time you listen to this, it'll be at least the 4th of July. What's up, America? Happy birthday. Um, as of that morning, it appeared clear after the Supreme Court weighed in that there would not be a citizenship question on the census. The uh, Commerce Secretary and others had said so, and that was done. But I look up from this recording, it's just afternoon on Wednesday now, and Donald Trump is saying, wait a minute, maybe not. So, who knows? Anyways, we're going to be talking maps, and after that, Victoria Bekempis is back and in the courts. And her and Alex Lynn will be talking about some uh, salacious stuff that happened and some serious stuff. Shout out to the Dalai Lama. Let's jump right in. Joining us at the uh, McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU's Silver School of Social Work is Stephen Romanelski, who directs the CUNY Mapping Service at the Center for Urban Research at CUNY's Graduate Center. He's been uh, working largely on the census and the, uh, the threat of an undercount in New York and elsewhere. And you can see some incredible uh, maps as to how hard to count your area is at Rolls right off the tongue. Census Hard to Count Maps 2020.us. That's a slick, slick title. Just Google it. Yeah. You'll get it. <laughs> Google Census Hard to Count in and it'll come up. Is exactly right. Yeah. Right away. So, Stephen, thanks for coming in and joining sure. us. Thanks for having me. The man behind the maps. <laughs> so, so, for listeners who have not been all the way keyed in, What's happening with the uh, census and uh, what's at stake for New York in particular in the, uh, in the course of that? So first of all, the census that we're talking about is the one that happens every 10 years, required by the Constitution. And the Census Bureau is very active and they're constantly doing surveys and analysis. But this is the, the main show. It's the decennial census. And it's – the goal is to have a 100 percent count of the population across the country where people live – on April 1st, uh, 2020. And it's hugely important because so many things depend on an accurate count. There's hundreds of billions of dollars every year in federal programs that go to states that rely on census data, that use census data to figure out which state gets what. Political representation is on the line. So the census data is used to apportion congressional seats for each state. And then also to draw the congressional district boundaries and also every other legislative district boundary. And it's really about, you know, representation. It's about, you know, do you count? Um, and it's really critical. Literally. Exactly. Are you counted? <clears throat> That's right. And it, the thing is, though, it's really hard to count everyone. <laughs> and the way the Census Bureau does it is, first of all, they're counting households. So they, uh, you, whoever you are, as the householder – are supposed to answer the, the census questionnaire. There's only 10 questions. Uh, there would have been 11 had the Supreme Court allowed the citizenship question to be added. <clears throat> but now there's only 10. They're very straightforward questions. Um, let's, let's pause for one second there to explain this, uh, this citizenship question. So, so is, that, is that ordinary <laughs> that, that, hey, you know, we're just going to throw on, you know, starting – year before or whatever, we're just going to throw on one big additional question. And, and uh, So a lot of people say, out? well, you know, why can't you ask, why shouldn't we know how many people are citizens or not? And <clears throat> the Supreme Court actually said, look, the Department of Commerce, which uh, the Census Bureau is a part of, has the authority to include whatever questions they want as long as Congress can approve it um, on the questionnaire. And so they could have done that. But um, number one <clears> – <throat> There is already a question about citizenship that's asked of a separate Census Bureau questionnaire that goes out every year. It's called the American Community Survey and it doesn't go out to everyone. It's only a sample of the population. It's super cool that that is data worth digging into. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, it's a, it's a tremendous trove of information about who we are and the characteristics of the population and all of that. Um, but they ask a question about citizenship on that sample quest, uh, survey. So we already know a lot of information. And the Department of Commerce said their sole reason for wanting to include a citizenship question on the decennial census, the one that happens every 10 years, not every year. Can we call that the big census? The big census, sure. <laughs> and um, The great census. <laughs> the, the grand wazoo of all censuses. <laughs> so the Department of Commerce said we want the citizenship question on the decennial census because we want to use that information. We want better information than we get from the American Community Survey so we can enforce the Voting Rights Act, which is a farce. They don't want to enforce the Voting Rights Act. They never have. They want to undermine the Voting Rights Act uh, with this administration. Luckily, the people who brought legal action, including New York State and a lot of immigration groups and civil rights groups, said they really built up the um, record to show that that was just a joke. And the Supreme Court believed them and they agreed with them. And they said, yes, the reasoning that Wilbur Ross, Commerce Secretary, provided for the citizenship question was contrived. They said there was a significant mismatch between his reasoning, the Voting Rights Act enforcement, and the decision to include the citizenship questionnaire, which is, to me, Supreme Court speak for he lied. <laughs> they didn't say that, obviously, but that's basically what he did. And then the other thing is, yeah, the, the Census Bureau, the civil servants of the Census Bureau are great, and they really take to heart making sure that their programs and their census operations um, try to have a fair and accurate count. And so they do all sorts of testing and analysis and examination of even slightly changing the wording on existing questions for the decennial census. So for the, the administration to come in and say, you know, last minute, we're going to throw this question on untested for real, really no good reason was just crazy. And it was, uh, you know, uh, kind of to appease Trump's base. And there was a yeah. lot of fanfare made around it. I, I think if you look at who gets undercounted and how, right, this isn't a count of, of citizens. This is just supposed to be a count of who's living in the U.S. That's right. right. So yeah. if you discourage people who are not citizens from responding in an era of like very weird and complicated enforcement. So we've seen this with things like uh, driver's licenses here. When the city started creating its own municipal ID, mm -hmm. not a driver's license, which the state has now just created, for immigrants, there was this, wait, what happens if the federal government comes after this? And at the time, it was President Obama. People were like, eh, that's never going to happen. And then, then these things do. So if you're trying to count 350 million or so people, and one right. of the you, questions is, are you a citizen? Yeah. They're going to shut the door. Right. And, and these are already difficult to count people and you have yeah. to do some guesswork and extrapolation, which I, I've, I've left to know more about how that works. Yeah. you can't just line everyone in the country up, right? <laughs> well, I mean, the, again, the decennial census is supposed to be 100 percent count of everyone. But yeah, you're right. The Adding the citizenship question really would have imposed – a big challenge on people trying to ask uh, all this information of householders around the country, especially in areas where there are large shares of non-citizens and people who know non-citizens and, and a number of others who are just concerned about government intrusion and all that. So it would have been a big problem. Now, having said that, just the proposal to put the citizenship question on amidst the current political climate with ICE raids and, and all of that and the anti-immigration sentiment from the White House is a big problem. And so we still have a lot of work to do to make sure that people understand that the census not only is really important, it's required by the Constitution, it's essential for people to be counted, and they really need to participate. And so that's why we've done this mapping work uh, with civil rights groups around the country and here in New York and uh, foundations who are supporting this work around the country. And the idea is that when the Census Bureau for 2020, they're going to send out mailings to most households in the country. Um, some people will get the information dropped off at their doorstep and a small number will have, be counted in person right off the bat. But most households will get a mailing and the mailing will say, you have a choice of how you want to respond. You can submit your information online, you can call it in by phone, or you can request a paper questionnaire and fill that out and then mail that back in. And we know from experience and past censuses that not everyone does that. 
They don't self-respond. They don't submit the information on their own. And where large shares of households don't, those are the areas that are hardest to count because the census, the Census Bureau, their charge is to count everyone. And so if you don't self-respond, they hire a small army of people, census takers, census enumerators around the country to go door to door and ask you in person for that information. So if you don't send it in on your own, someone's going to come knocking at your door and, you know, you don't want that. Why bother? You know, you just send in the information on your own and that's the best way to, for the census to get information. It's the least expensive way and the most reliable way. My brother's mom uh, does that after she retired. She uh, looks like Rhea Perlman and sounds like Fran Drescher and she lives in Park Slope and she's kind of wonderful that way. But yeah, she's the perfect like officious door knocker to go. Well, and what the Census Bureau tries to do is they try to hire local. So mm-hmm. people <clears throat> who you know, people who look like you, who Sa- do speak what the you same do, language. speak the same language, they're going to be going door to door. But still, you know, it's someone from the government, from the federal government coming to knock on your door. So hopefully people will self-respond. And so that's why our, our online map, hard as the URL might be, but it's still easy to find. Um, Google it. <laughs> Google. Census hard to count maps. And you'll get it. Um, 2020. Sh- <laughs> it shows – areas that uh, were really hard to count in 2010 and likely will be again. And there's also a lot of information underneath that. So if you click on the map, you'll get all sorts of information about your community, including the share of households in your neighborhood that don't have home internet access. And that's a really big thing for 2020 because the Census Bureau hopes that most people will submit their information online. So right off the bat, if you don't have good internet access at home, that's another challenge. So this is going to be a tough one. What's at stake for New York especially? So New York State receives – I forget the exact number, but it's in the billions of dollars every year from federal programs that rely on census data. Uh, A big issue is the number of congressional seats that we'll have. The population projections indicate that New York will likely lose one congressional uh, seat. But if there is an undercount, if enough people don't respond to the census and they don't open their door to the census enumerators and they don't get counted, then it's possible, maybe even likely, that New York will lose two congressional districts. And that's a big issue with so many policies and issues at stake for New Yorkers that depend on the actions of Congress. So we really need as much representation as we should get based on our population in D.C. Um, And then also locally, you know, if – an area has an undercount that's really concentrated. That means they'll have less political representation, not just in Congress, but in the state legislature, in New York City Council, and it, it cascades down. So a lot's at stake. So Christina isn't here. Um, she sends her, her best from her best life. Christina's uh, great. Across the globe on the beach. <laughs> but you know, I know that one of the questions that, that she'd want us to ask is uh, – and what this really boils down to is, is who gets counted, right, and then who counts. So who tends not to count, to get undercounted and to be washed away? Because I assume it's not just uh, entirely random. Right. So in past censuses, typically non-Hispanic white population tends to be overcounted because people, you know, let's say your kids are in college and – You as the diligent parent and homeowner, you fill out the census for them. But then they're at school and they get the census form at their dorm and they fill it out too. And so then there's a double counting of of the population. And kids under five, that's a population group that has a serious undercount in past censuses uh, because people either – forget to include their kids, don't think that they need to count their kids maybe. Um, And that's across (laughs) – I count all my good kids. I feel like that's a bigger problem. (laughs) Or, you know, maybe there's complex family relationships with uh, adoptees and, you know, who knows. So – but that's – no one's really sure why, but that's a big age group that gets undercounted. People of color certainly get undercounted. Um, There is a piece – in the Los Angeles Times that talked about Native American populations on reservations, huge undercount for that group. So, right, it's, it's uneven who gets counted and who doesn't. And so that's why it's really important not only for people to fill out the form, but it's really important for organizations that are – you know, know their communities best – to get involved and to become what the Census Bureau calls trusted messengers or trusted partners because 
you know, it's one thing for the federal government to say, fill out this form, it's required. But it's something completely different for even, you know, the local bodega owner in your corner to say, oh, the census is really important. We rely on the census data. Got to fill out the form. And, you know, your pastor or uh, messages, you know, from your synagogue or mosque or whatever, that really resonates better with people. How, how does the Census Bureau go about getting trusted local people to vouch for them? I assume, you know. <laughs> well, it's a huge effort. There's a, a big uh, partnership program the Census Bureau has. Um, organizations already are uh, being very active. So there's a coalition of groups in New York State called New York Counts 2020 that's got a huge membership of organizations around the state that, you know, understand that the census matters and they need to really get the word out. Uh, there are so-called complete count commissions that have been created. Manhattan just launched one. Brooklyn has had one for a while. Queens has one. And then, you know, there are local efforts. So the Census Bureau actually just published a list of these complete count commissions and there are thousands of them around the country. How do they go about trying to count uh, homeless populations, particularly unsheltered mm. homeless populations? So the Census Bureau has a separate uh, count for that and they try to include that information. Um, I, don't, I forget the exact mechanics of that, but there is a separate count of uh, homeless population. But yeah, so this is – 2020 is going to be a big challenge even though thankfully the Supreme Court – agreed that it was uh, bogus to include the citizenship question, um, it's still going to be really hard to make sure in 2020 that, that everyone knows the importance of the census and the importance of participating in the census and filling out the form. As so, far as like – I wanted to know a little bit about what these – the maps that you make. What are, what are some of the maps that you're most proud of? Uh, on the NYC election atlas or on the census? Well, the census to, atlas is yeah. a big one. The census uh, uh, map that we created is actually a reprise of something we did for the 2010 census um, when we were asked by civil rights groups and foundations to put together this information. And it was really helpful in 2010. Organizations loved that the Census Bureau itself used it. And, um, and so we're really proud to be able to do that again. And we hope it has an impact. We hope it really helps groups – uh, really prioritize and target their get-out-the-count efforts. So that's a big one. Um, I don't know. I'm proud of all, all the maps my team makes. <laughs> uh, and it's it's great. We, it's really great being able to pull this information together and create a picture from it that is meaningful, that helps people understand patterns and, and the importance of these issues. How did you get into map making and how has it changed over the course of your career? So I, I used to work for the New York Public Interest Research Group and I was doing a lot of environmental research and organizing with them. And my former boss had was using – this is in the early 90s uh, – the first iterations of um, computer mapping software called GIS, Geographic Information Systems. And he said, oh, this is really good. You, got, you guys should do this too. And so we started to create some maps of where toxic contaminated sites were that we showed to local community groups and they used that to help press the authorities to clean up these sites quicker. Is it, was that just super fun sites or just uh, – It was super fun sites and actually right around that time, the uh, US EPA, because of a law that Congress passed, started to require companies that were releasing toxic chemicals into the environment, not just Superfund sites, but manufacturing plants and others, to report that information and make it public, the Toxic Release Inventory Program. And so we started to use that information too and show people around the, the state that, you know, look, there are a lot of polluting companies right in your neighborhood that you may not have known about. It was really powerful. And then I went to – I had an opportunity to uh, do a fellowship at Columbia University, the Revson Fellowship. And I stayed to get my master's degree in, in urban planning. And I learned a lot more there uh, about mapping, about planning obviously and land use and um, uh, the census, how to use census data, how to analyze census data. And we – so we decided while I was at NYPIRC to create this program called the Community Mapping Assistance Project that would help nonprofits around the country use GIS because especially at the time, so this is one way it's changed, it was very expensive to have your own GIS software and to get all the data, you know, open data wasn't really a thing at the time. And um, so we helped hundreds of groups around the country make maps of various projects. We, we developed interactive maps online. We had a, a subway station finder way before Google Maps existed. And we had a map of open space uh, assets throughout New York City. 
that we developed with the U.S. Forest Service. And Open so, space assets? Yeah. It's, Just it's, like empty lots? Or, no, uh, oh. parks, community ah. gardens, things like that. Uh, the Open Accessible Space Information System, oasisnyc.net. <laughs> and yeah. it's still used extensively by community groups and uh, others trying to find out what open space resources are in their neighborhoods. And then we were making all of these maps for nonprofit groups, and it kind of grew a little bit beyond what this advocacy organization was all about. And so I moved over to the uh, City University of New York Graduate Center uh, to work with John Mollenkoff at his Center for Urban Research. And, um, and so that's where I've been since 2006. And so we've been doing basically continuing to do the same types of things, mapping interesting patterns for socially relevant purposes, but now doing it on maybe a bigger scale. I assume the software's changed a lot. Like how did tech impact oh, yeah, yeah. So, your... So probably the, the big change, which is not just within computer mapping, but the big change has been open source software. So now open source software and maps online. Um, so Google Maps, you know, revolutionized that or introduced that concept really on a broad scale and revolutionized it. So now because pe- more and more people are doing their own coding and it's become so much easier to do because of open source programs that you just download stuff and you don't have to buy something and have a proprietary license for it, it's, that's really exploded. So that's you know, vastly different from how it used to be when it first started. You know, one thing about the Census Bureau is they really helped uh, create the computer mapping industry in the country because – and I, I teach uh, urban planning students at Pratt Institute how to use GIS uh, for their planning work. GIS standing for? Geographic Information Systems. Um, the fancy word for computer maps. <laughs> Not a map nerd, a GIS nerd. <laughs> and so one thing I talk about right at the start is that, you know, this because the Census Bureau had to develop a computer mapped database of the street grid for the entire country in 1980 and 1990, they had that information. It was in the public domain. And right about the same time, companies that had developed these geographic information system software packages were moving off of the mainframe and onto the desktop. And they needed to be able to say to people in order to buy the software, here's some data that you could use to make some maps. And the Census Bureau provided that basically. And so that really revolutionized the GIS industry at the time in the the 90s. And then it's, you know, expanded exponentially since then. So – is the map the uh, the territory now? So I guess it depends what you mean. <laughs> Maybe you could expand I, I on the question. I just asked the question. <laughs> so, so, so after Tiffany Caban's apparent win in the Democratic primary in Queens, I saw a prominent justice Democrat say, I guess Twitter is real life now. Since there have been this argument that the, 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 the rising forces of the left were very vocal online – um, but but weren't actually represented uh, among voters, so I, I'm interested both in getting your 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 read on that election and what it might show us and what the maps there show us, and then also just to get a sense of what is still undercounted in New York. So we were talking right before we came on. Uh, HUD is on my list. The population of Queens is on my my, my list. Um, you have the yeah NYCHA. You, you have you have the, these sort of sort of striking anomalies where everyone knows what's actually happening, but the the, the official count is uh, somewhat dramatically different. Like NYCHA, it's four hundred thousand people live in NYCHA. Uh, everyone thinks it's over half a million, maybe six hundred thousand. Um, so 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 those people are in a, a somewhat literal sense not not counted. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and actually, and a lot for, of them are in Queens. for NYCHA, it's interesting because so you know the census is a self-reported count of the population, but. Presumably, NYCHA has, you know, administrative records where they can precisely, more precisely peg that number. But I think they, 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 mm-hmm. they necessarily squinted a lot. People they're, they're aware are living mm-hmm. in units who are, not, uh, who are not tenants there, for instance. Um, Actually, that's one important thing about the census. So you're, you're counted and when the Census Bureau reports the numbers, it's anonymous and they require this really strict – rules for Census Bureau employees and anyone who touches that data to not release or divulge any personal information. They just release it in the aggregate. And so – but it's important because you should participate in the census whether you're, you know, here 
as a citizen or non-citizen and whether you're in housing that, you know, is doubled up or tripled up or it doesn't matter. And hopefully the messaging is strong enough that it gets across that you're not going to get targeted for that if you count, if you report that, you know, that where you live, even if the information might, even if where you live might not be up to code or whatever. So, so I'm looking at Republicans who it seems to me are, are sort of cynically trying to control who gets counted in the census, who have worked very hard to create districts. And these 10th these year elections are very important because if one party controls a legislature and a state house right. at that point, they, they get to draw the new maps based on these new counts. The Supreme Court, which uh, just pushed out the census question, said gerrymandering is in our business. So you, you draw whatever crazy map you want. And so you have lots of people who are spoiled votes, purposely spoiled votes, right? So, so, so in Wisconsin, Democrats can win nearly 60 percent of the vote and not control the legislature because the districts are drawn the, so that Republicans don't even have to bother running candidates in those districts. Mm-hmm. And they know that they have just enough support to win in the other ones. Have there ever been concerns about census fraud like voter fraud? Or is this, until now at least, the census been, been sort of insulated from the, those more uh, – immediate political concerns. Yeah. I mean, if anything, the concern about the census is, is concern about the undercount and not counting fairly or accurately uh, overall. And so that's still certainly a challenge. But um, Maybe the modern GOP is comfortable with that. Well, so, you know, one thing the Supreme Court said is that the, the people who brought the litigation were hoping that uh, the Supreme Court would rule that there is actually a standard or a, or a method you could use to determine partisan gerrymandering, not, not just racial gerrymandering, but partisan gerrymandering like you were just describing. And they said, no, we're not going to do that. So now it's really – it's as it was, which was it's up to the states to – to, uh, this, whoever controls the state legislature or in some places if there's an independent commission or some apparatus outside the state legislature to do the redistricting. So in New York, after the 2012 redistricting at the state level, the legislature passed and the voters approved a redistricting commission, which the idea was that it, this is going to be an independent commission, but because of the language of the law, the judge said, no, you can't call it independent because it's not really independent. So it really remains to be seen what's going to happen in New York. So ostensibly, there's this commission that's supposed to draw the lines. If the legislature doesn't like those lines, whoever is in charge at the time, the state legislature can draw their own lines. Um, In the past, what's happened in New York at the congressional level is that Legal action has been brought and a a federal justice has been called in, a a special master, to draw the lines for Congress. And um, they – the lines for Congress have generally been pretty good in New York compared with the lines for state legislature, state senate and state assembly, which are unbelievably gerrymandered. So we'll see what happens in New York if this commission does a better job and they'll certainly have the ability to look at things like partisan gerrymandering and try to avoid that. We'll see. Who knows? It's it's a, an open question. And then will the legislature step in and say, no, we don't like that. We're going to do it ourselves, which the law allows them to do basically. There are certain steps they have to go through, but that's uh, you know a real possibility. Uh, so we'll see. I like the idea that a special master had to be brought in to draw the lines for the children who couldn't agree. <laughs> <laughs> it distinguishes the parties a bit. In states with full Republican control, frequently you've had legislatures just draw lines to maximize partisan uh, advantage. In in democratic states, they're like, we, we, we want to be fair. And there's some truth to that. And there's this idea we're bringing in uh, special masters, some outside mapping body, which is what the Supreme Court was running away from here. They're like, math, maps, <laughs> numbers, what do we know? This is very hard to measure, which it is, especially literally the border cases, right? But in democratic states, there's this at least idea that we're being reasonably fair and neutral. Even as, you know, if you have like the fun political conversations, people are like, here's how we're going to knock out, you know, Peter King from Long Island. Uh, from his congressional seat or, you know, um, various state senators. Um, You know, if you control the map and you control the districts, you can make winners and losers. You can draw people out of their maps. You can make them much more difficult for them. And if one party is nakedly doing this and the other party does not want to be perceived that way, it creates very complicated asymmetries. And I think these are likely to be enhanced after this totalizing 2020 election that's coming up. The right. side control of these legislatures and state houses, like, uh, you know, 
look, New York right now could 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 pass anything they wanted. The Democrats now control New York. There's no chance with Trump on the ballot of that getting reversed. So you have a lot of moderate Democrats in Long Island who are now like the new IDC or deeply concerned with this. The Long Island Six. <laughs> yeah, and and have been in this very funny relationship with Cuomo where they're now supposed to be his balancing support. So Cuomo will say, I'm for this progressive reform. And then Jay Jacobs is the head of the Democratic Party and a Long Island power and a summer camp owner. Shout out. Oh, oh you're talking only Democrats in Long Island. We'll, we'll, we'll say, you know what, this thing that, that, that the governor says he's for, speaking as the head of the party the governor controls, we're talking now about driver's licenses, you guys should be against that. So there are all these these complicated splits, and my gut is sorry to go on, but after this next election, unfortunately, we're going to be in an even more sort of a totalizing set of of dynamics, and and that is going to benefit, I think, um, Trump, the backdrop he wants for re-election, and uh, the forces of uh, the resistance, if you will, in places like New York, and make it very hard for the well, you got to see both sides crew to maintain uh, any uh, handhold in our politics. I'm curious if that leads right afterward to to some sort of uh, moderating backlash in which new people who don't think all that much about politics and don't necessarily vote start start turning out if they feel like the, the new uh, radicals representing them in the state have gone well past what they're comfortable with. Well, you know, one thing about the recent elections, the congressional primaries recently and then the Caban election – in Queens is that you definitely have a sense and uh, to some extent I think the numbers bear this out but there's certainly a sense that you know younger more recent registrants registered voters are turning out uh, to participate um, whether that's been enough and that, whether that's really swung the scales I think that remains to be seen but there's you definitely get that sense that you know the the Twitter crowd, if you, if you may, is uh, getting more involved, and I think generally that's good. I think it's you know having that votes. yeah having that youthful, more progressive sense of things, and uh, both um, being unhappy with the status quo and also interested in doing something better and really improving things and being more sensible about it is great. I think that's uh, that kind of infusion is good. What, will that impact the kinds of things you're describing? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> That's too much of a crystal ball to tr- figure out. But uh, hopefully that the, the uh, results of recent elections indicate that that's, that more progressive, youthful crowd is getting involved in voting. We'll see. A couple of Queens questions before we take off. So do the Democratic Socialists uh, control New York now? Yeah, you were saying is the map the territory or maybe that's a different way of ask, asking that same question is, you know, it, it's hard to say. Um, <clears throat> so number one, just for the uh, Queen's DA race, when you look at the election district level results, you see very clearly that Tiffany Caban had the strongest support in Western Queens and Bar President Katz had strong, although not as strong support in Southeast Queens. But between those two poles, as it were, those two geographic uh, poles of Queens, in between that, you also see that Caban had a good amount of support. You know? yeah. So it wasn't just the so-called gentrifiers of Western New York, or Western Queens, rather. It was she got a lot of support elsewhere. So throughout. Western Queens is like just across from Manhattan, rising rents, lots of people commuting into the city. Southeast Queens being largely black homeowners who were hit by the economic crisis that passed over most of the rest of the uh, the city in 2008 mm-hmm. um, and, and in some ways more conservative. Uh, but so, so Tiffany Kaman did – she didn't get enough support in that area to win but she did get some support there. So you know, it, so that's one thing. But the, and then the other thing is – can you develop a trend from this? Can you extrapolate from this what's going to happen in the future? I don't think so. Or I think it's pretty hard to do that because the next election will be, uh, let's say, congressional or uh, municipal uh, citywide. And it depends on the candidates and it's, it depends Party on the turnout. Party Pickford Judge lost as well, which got very little attention. But I think in some ways is a bigger deal for the machine losing its power. Mm-hmm. Um, in Queens um, this year. Queens and the Bronx had bizarro, the wrong year elections that that have helped 
suppress turnout uh-huh. and keep things level, but also mean it takes a relative handful of new voters or younger people or new interest to completely change the uh, the political dynamics. I also think a lot of the, this door knocking campaigning is kind of smashing the just very personal allegiances that your everyday person has with their representative, where they don't really look at the outside politics, but they look at what they're doing in the community centers and the handshaking in the local parks and the like uh, small wins that they have for the everyday person. A lot of the new candidates that are coming in, AOC, Biagi, Caban did this, but as Christina Greer has brought up several times, she didn't quite do enough of this. But the literal walk up to the door, Mm -hmm. hello, hi, how are you, how are you doing? I think people who were involved in Max Rose's win in uh, Congressional District 11 would say that too, or that that door knocking effort really played a big role. Yeah, um, he he definitely turned the. I was in uh, Staten Island for FAQ the day of the election. There was a lot of a lot of Max Rose voters very enthusiastic to come out. So the question is, will that be sustained? Will that continue? Will that expand? Will that move into different races? Uh, who knows? And how <laughs> much of it is say. ideological versus how much of it is generational? Yeah, right. right? Is Max Rose as the uh, very, very reluctant progressive. Uh-huh. Um, right, right. Is he going to be able to hold on to Staten Island, which from your maps uh-huh. uh, I uh, look at and I'm like, wow, that's a, it's a red borough. Yeah, although Democrats have won. Um, Cuomo won. Obama won. de Blasio did not. But, you know, Democrats obviously have won uh, throughout the borough. And it's the registered voters on Staten Island are plurality Democrat. But people there, I think, you know, they, they tend to go past that and vote for whoever they think makes the most sense. Shout out to a blue-eyed, low-class villain, Michael Grimm, whose like unpleasant, thuggish appeals to voters there have actually helped tip the uh, balance toward Democrats as he continues his deplorable bullshit. Didn't I we want like to have show. him on the show at some point? You, you're welcome on this show. Yeah, I like his. You're name. welcome on the show. I, I will. I'll have this discussion <gasps> with you. Speaking of um, speaking of Michael Grimm, do you guys have any like crime maps, like maps of certain kinds of criminals? We haven't or crime in general. We haven't done that much uh, with crime mapping in the past. We had where our Center for Urban Research had helped the NYPD develop some of this. A number of years ago, but but you know the NYPD does a lot of that, and other organizations have been doing a lot of that. We have um, an application that we developed with the New York Academy of Medicine for their age friendly NYC program, and you can see on that map, uh, which is imagenycmap.org, less of a mouthful than the census. Imagenycmap.org, where you can look at an overlay of uh, uh, patterns of. Different types of crimes, not everything, but but so anyway, that was our one foray recently into. Crime. There was a book called um, what was it called, The Big Con, where it was like almost an anecdotal history of of different kinds of cons and confidence men. And if if I could put in any request, it would be like a historical map to see the changing kinds of crime that were committed in the different boroughs in New York City, like mm-hmm. uh, you know um. Uh, federal, obviously that changes with marijuana laws and things like that, but like violent crime as opposed to nonviolent drug offenses. and It's definitely something that may have been done. I mean, it's obviously a big area and there's a lot of – actually, um, John Jay College within CUNY does a lot of uh, analysis of crime patterns, so they may have done something like that already. Well, there's there's a sociologist law. It has a few different names. Campbell's Law um, is the one I, I tend to use and it, it's – as he framed it in the 70s, the more any quantitative social indicator is used for decision-making, the more subject it will be to corruption pressures and the more apt to distort and corrupt the social processes it's intended to measure. And the question is always what you're mapping and, and how it corresponds to the territory. And so this was in some ways the story of stop and frisk and this new form that under A.G. Cuomo you know, police had to fill out to basically count stuff they'd already been doing. And then this became, over time, a political reality. And the department's defense for a lot of it was, we were always doing this shit. We just weren't tracking it. So so as you're measuring things, I remember when Ron Paul was sure to be president because social media sentiment was all for him. And we could measure now, like, the, the, the it of America that way. You always have to, I think, stop and ask what it is that you're not able to uh, – to, to measure or understand what is not on your maps is, is off the legend, mm-hmm. uh, missing from the key, all that. Much as I love maps and love making them, I always point out that 
you know, when people look at a map, off too often they think, oh, the map is truth. And it is not necessarily the truth, partly because of that, because you as the map maker either decide what to include and what not to include, or because the data isn't available, you can't include certain things. Or maybe the data has been collected in a way, like you're saying, that is either inappropriate or inaccurate or incomplete. And so, yeah, there are all these issues that you have to contend with to try to create something that's a visual representation as close as possible to reality. And it's not always that. <laughs> so that's a challenge. Thank you so much for coming in and joining sure. us. I Thank have you. Really appreciate it. A Zen cone for you on the way out. Okay. How do you fold a digital map? I'll think about that. <laughs> uh, it probably has something to do with moving the what they called the turtle, which was a triangle all around the screen. F1, F2. Anyone else remember that or am I just – I don't remember the turtle. Well, oh. in some ways, if you have a smartphone, as it were, the map is always in your pocket. So it doesn't need to be folded. What's your Twitter handle? SR underscore spatial. Awesome. F-A-Q. Welcome to In the Courts. Courts, courts, courts with Victoria Kempis and me, Alex Brooklyn. And joining us today is Harry Siegel. Hey. Hey. It's good to be back. I know that, you know, in the courts, it was a little couple weeks where we didn't have it. We uh, had a hiatus. We had a hiatus. We had a recess. A re- hey. Hey. <laughs> in the courts is adjourned. In the courts was adjourned for a little while, but now it's back. Yeah. Yeah. Sweet. But, um. Oh, in that time, you hung out with Cardi B. <laughs> Not really. But well, you wrote about her. Yeah, yeah. She was actually indicted on several felony charges in that uh, strip club melee. But it's kind of interesting because at first she was accused of participating in one strip club brawl. And then the indictment said that there were two separate incidents she was involved in. In one of the incidents, she was allegedly involved in the planning of an assault. And then in the second incident, she was accused of actually being their IRL. So it's kind of an interesting case that we want to keep watching to see, you know, how did it go from, you So know, there's two charges, conspiracy to commit strip club melee and well, no, also there's, there's strip a bunch club of, melee. There's a bunch of counts of the indictment ah, against right. uh, Cardi and her two co-defendants in this case. But two of those counts are felonies, or two of those counts that she's charged with are felony attempted assault. So can we look forward to more reporting oh, by yeah. Victoria Bikempis yeah, for on sure. the Cardi B oh, of course. trial of the century? Yeah, I mean, we don't know, we don't know if it's going to go to trial. Um, right. Yeah. I mean, still TBD. Um, she has. She might. What, what's the possibility? Well, I mean, she's she could, maintained her innocence. Right. She has maintained her innocence. She pleaded not guilty. But you know, it's but always there's still time for a little deal. Yeah. I mean, if I mean, that's always it's always on the a deal is always on the table. Like, I mean, not always on the table. I mean, it depends whether the prosecutors want to do a deal. But like, you know, there's plenty we, of slip between the cup and the lip. What? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what that means. It might. It means that like. She pleaded not guilty. There should be a trial. But, like, between when you pick up the teacup and when you put it to your mouth, you could slip and all the tea could fall out and your cup breaks. My dad used to say that. Like, oh, you had a handshake? They said they're going to give you that job? Well, until you sign the papers, there's plenty of slip between the cup and the lip. And a sink of the lip could sink a ship. A slip of the ah. lip. No, no. no um, uh, a a slip of the lips. lip. A slip loose of the lip, lip could sink a ship. The poster is Loose Lips Sink Ships. Right. But the song, which I believe is public domain, is uh, Oops, Don't Say Too Much. Because a sip of the lip could sink a ship. But yeah, right, that's so it for me. We don't know we don't know exactly what's gonna happen with the case. She's pleaded not guilty, so there's nothing to indicate that she's gonna change her plea. I mean, you know, but Cases, I'll just say this, like cases always, you know, there's always, you know, things that come up or don't come up in cases. Um, so just, you know, I just want to be very clear. There's no, you know, but we'll, indication one way or the other how this case is going to play yet, out. But you are going to keep us updated. I'm going to keep you updated. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm Cardi B is very important yeah. to oh. me, this show, and this universe. Oh, also Kiva Gooding Jr., he's accused in a groping incident. And, um, oh, this is kind of... You know, I know we were going to talk about serious stuff. We are however, at right after this. Yeah. However, um, Harry. Da, 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 da. Harry. This is when she started. Shh. Don't 
Don't talk too much. Shh. Don't know too much. Jack, don't be too hip. Cause a slip of the lip might sink a ship. You know, it's weird. We could just, like, take that song and cut it in. But it's also good that you held it next to the microphone. <laughs> oh. Slip of the lip could sink a podcast. <laughs> okay, I'm done. This okay, energy back to, is good. This is good this energy. This is good energy. We like what, would, what would Marianne like, Williamson say about this energy right now? Oh, she would be like, I feel it in the room that love, choosing love changes everything. However, let's talk about some bad energy. Let's talk about Cuba Gooding Jr. Yes. Cuba. Cuba. Yeah. So anyway, he's accused in a groping incident. He's um, being – There's videotape. I I don't – I there is videotape. I have not extensively studied the videotape. But what I will say is that his lawyer, uh, after – after his last court appearance, um, talked about I, – I don't even know how to describe this. But um, he claims that the victim, because she made blog posts about how her small breasts made her feel insecure, that prosecutors – how could prosecutors possibly – oh, man, everyone should look at Harry's face. So basically, Goodings Jr. is claiming that the victim made blog posts about how her small breasts made her feel insecure and invisible. And how could she possibly be a reliable accuser to make blog posts like this? So at the presser, Wait, if I after the- t- say that like a piece of my body makes me insecure, I can no longer ever accuse anybody of sexual assault, even if they grope me on videotape. Is that what they're implying? I – well, I, I don't exactly know. And just to be clear, like I'm not opining one way or the other on this. I'm just mentioning this um, thing. So I asked the lawyer at the kind of impromptu presser after the thing where he described this alleged blog post. You know, if this goes to trial, is breast size going to be part of your defense? <laughs> and he – you know, and he says, you know, I don't know if – I don't think that breast size will be part of the defense. But – you know, the blog posts will be. So, breasts. You know who I have seen? You know what I have Dalai seen? Lama. You know who I've Dalai seen? Dalai Lama. Da- um. You know what I've seen a lack of, actually, <laughs> Wait, this what summer? Dal- what? One of us has to talk or the other. This is frustrating. Okay. You know what I've seen a lack of this summer? Is those, like, weird breast augmentation ads in the subway. <laughs> There are much the, less of them this summer than there have been in previous summers. The ones the with one, the oranges. The one, no, there's orange ones, but then there's also <laughs> other ones that's like, oh, don't you wish you had big breasts? Otherwise, you're inadequate. I translate. But, you know, basically that's what it says. And it was amazing that those were allowed. And then there was that big scurfuffle a couple years ago how they didn't want that half of a grapefruit for the period panties advertisements because it was too, like, vaginally suggestive. Ah. But they could have, like, oh, don't you wish you had a beach body, a.k.a. breast augmentation? (laughs) I don't know. Anyway. um, That's why I wear a lot of eye makeup because – Eyes. To keep the eyes up. It's to keep. Well, no, because eyes are my cleavage. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, what were you going to say about the Dalai Lama? So, so he got asked, it, like, like, what about a female Dalai Lama? You know, because of reincarnation and so forth. He was like, their breasts wouldn't she, be big she, enough. She should be more attractive. He said, um, a female Dalai Lama. Oh, the people I think prefer not see her that face. So, whoa! What does Uma Thurman have to say about this? I don't know, but what uh, the uh, but what a, a uh, spokesperson? By the way, this guy lets me down all the time. Then explain. Yeah, <laughs> this guy lets our so sound the translation Adam here Kamara down all the time. Yeah, yeah. Sad. Um, <laughs> spokesperson then explained that when he said, you know, um, the, the the lady Lama better be hot. Um, Oof. His holiness um, has a keen sense of the contradictions between the materialistic, globalized world he encounters on his travels and the complex, more esoteric ideas about reincarnation, um, et cetera. What, they were claiming he was being ironic? I don't know. I, I think they're – Or they, like pointing out the ills of society by imitating them in a weird tongue-in-cheek kind of sarcastic way? I don't know. Hmm. That, 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 that's what happened and uh, – when you're a spokesperson, at a certain point, your job is to just put out a, a series of soothing words and hope that attention goes elsewhere, right? So so if Cuba Gooding Jr. is allegedly on videotape with his wife there, allegedly like groping other women while, you know, high-fiving the Dalai Lama, you know, 
you can't be like, yeah, you all saw the videotape if you would like Cuba Gooding Jr. to keep paying you for your spokesperson or defense services. Right. You have to say this woman made blog posts about uh, – you know, body insecurity, and so she must be unreliable. Unreliable as a source. Well, I have. I can. I can pull up the lawyer's exact quotes. Ooh la la! Yeah, look um, at this courts reporter over here yeah, doing court he said, reporting. Yeah. So I asked him the question, and he said, "Uh, I oh. think the statement will be part of our defense, not the breast size." Oh snap! Anyway. So we have other things to go over on in the courts today. And uh, Victoria, would you like to give us a little lead up? This is our serious part. This is our serious phase. We're going to be talking about the new ousting of the gay and trans panic defense. Yes. Um, so something really big happened on Sunday, which was – I would say good, but you don't have to put out an opinion. But I would say a good thing happened. So on the Worldwide Pride and 50th anniversary of Stonewall, um, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo, he signed legislation into law that bans what's called the Gay and Trans Panic Legal Defense. In the words of the government's office, the gay and trans panic defenses allow those accused of violent crimes against LGBTQ people to receive a lesser sentence and in some cases avoid conviction by placing the blame on a victim's sexual orientation or gender identity. Effectively, I found out that this person was gay or trans and I completely lost it. Like it I was just like lost, like a cartoon character fucking loses like it. Like being just overcome like, by fury or something like that. I was just overcome with insane, well not insane because that's a whole other kind of defense, but like I was just, it's like the, the passion defense. Well, I walked in and she was in bed with another man and I lost it. It's like that, only I walked down the street and I realized they were gay or trans and I lost it. Which seems to me like already a crazy – it seems like a far-fetched – The part of the trans panic defense that I don't understand is in mounting this defense, aren't you inherently copping to what is already defined as a hate crime? Harry? Many crimes that are motivated by hate are not hate crimes. Hate crime statutes are their own complicated set of things. Um, and, and they're one of the few places, rape is another one, where, where, where motive becomes very germane to what you are or aren't discussing. I also think that, that this, this gay panic defense thing was in a lot of ways as much as symbolic. Like it's wildly outrageous that people are allowed to do this. That that, that would be a mitigating factor. Then this was like a commonly used or, or successful defense in New York. Um, I'm not dug in, but that's my, my impression was this was not a widely used or very successful defense. Correct. Right. It just seems like a far – it seems really reaching for a defense attorney to use this. These types of defenses, as well as temporary insanity defenses, rarely work. But in the perhaps the most famous case in New York uh, involved um, a transgender woman in Harlem, Islan Nettles. Um, I and might, that's 2013? Yes. I'm, I, I might be mispronouncing her name and her apologies, last name. Apologies, um, But in, in effect, um, a man who killed her – his position before, you know, he wound up pleading guilty was I found out she was trans and I was just overcome with fury. And and he was just walking down the street or they had any relations before that? Uh, there was some type of interaction as he was walking down the street. From what I've read is that he started flirting with her and then a person who was with her was like, hey, um, she's trans. And then, you know, then he just, you know, went into this rage and beat her to death. And the thing is, you know, he went to jail. He pleaded guilty right on the eve of trial, right before jury selection was about to begin. So he got a 12-year sentence, but Islan's family has contended that, you know, he got a lesser sentence than he could have gotten because of this defense. And because now are people trying to appeal to sympathies of – homophobes is that is that what anyway that's what it sounds like go on so yes so this law now outlaws it now the interesting thing is that some uh, defense attorneys have come out in opposition to this claiming that we shouldn't put um, limitations on how people can defend themselves but it's definitely um, a, a big 
thing and uh, gaining initiative in other states. There are several other states that passed uh, similar legislation this year. And also, you know, you were telling me that it comes on the heels of other big changes in Albany with regard to gender and sex and discussions about sex work and and stuff like that. Well, uh, they were trying to write legislation – um, to end what they're calling the walking wall trans ban. So it was uh, the NYPD it was uh, to overturn like these loitering laws in this protocol. Now the NYPD has agreed um, to change their protocol in regard to making arrests on the basis of loitering for and and a lot of people argued that trans, women and gay men were being unfairly targeted in certain neighborhoods for quote-unquote loitering and they were being brought in as sex workers when they may or may not be but it matters not at all because they shouldn't be targeted uh, under this loitering law just for being trans or gay. But this legislative session, there's also New York has banned conversion therapy for minors, yep. right? So you cannot force your kid into strange psychological torture chambers in order to try to make them not gay. Now, parents can do all sorts of shit, but it's illegal for therapists and uh, um, other professionals in New York to offer that sort of treatment. Right. Parents can parents, parents can, can do all sorts of monstrous things. It comes with the territory. Ugh. Um, then also a bill protecting transgender and gender nonconforming people has fallen under New York's discrimination and hate crimes laws. So that happened as well. Yeah. So lots of lots of big stuff to protect um, LGBTQ persons um, in this legislative session. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, I think that's in the courts. Yeah. Yeah. That was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah. Got Cardi B. Man, free Cardi B. I don't want to have to print that T-shirt. Let's let's keep Cardi out of jail, shall we? Prison. Anyway, Cuba Gooding Jr. Um, and the small breast d- blog defense. We're going to see how that goes. Uh, and uh, big wins for protecting gay, trans, and gender nonconforming people. Um, I've had a great time, Victoria. I too have had a great time. Adam Kamara. Hi. <laughs> and Harry Siegel. Word. I'm going to put a gavel sound. I like that. Yeah. Hey, edit note. Can we put a gavel sound? Right here. Dunsky. Doom, doom. Don't Anytime you want to hit that stop record don't button. Cut, yeah, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> F-A-Q. F-A-Q NYC is brought to you by the letter Q. F-A-Q NYC. Um, uh, Civil a blockchain company. Civil a blockchain company. Start over. Start over. Give it to me hard. I'm... <laughs> <laughs> FAQ NYC is supported by a grant from the Civil Foundation working to reinvent the economics of journalism. We are headquartered at the McSilver Institute for Poverty Policy and Research at NYU Silver School of Social Work. Special thanks to Stephen Romaleski, who directs the CUNY Mapping Center at the Center for Urban Research at CUNY's Graduate Center. Check out Census Hard to Count Maps 2020.us. Thank you to Alex Lynn. Thank you to Victoria Bacampus. Thank you, as always, to Adam Kamara, Chrissy Greer. Enjoy. We will see you next week. Um, Brooklyn, we hear you. Bronx, we feel you. Queens, we see you. Staten Island, hey. States that are, are have full Republican control. Hmm. Um, and in those states, because they have this at the 10-year mark, they get to draw all the lines. And uh, uh, there, there, there's very little limitation on drawing lines that just create total wasted voters. And a bunch of states like Wisconsin have already done this. So, like, there is no, you know, 
it's like Hillary on, on, on steroids for like you can win 60 percent of the vote and still not control the legislature, right? Um, so now Democrats are like gerrymandering's bad and democracy's good and all of this stuff that's true and important have to be like, do we want to sound like this or do we want to say, fuck you, Peter King, your district is dead, <laughs> which they do. But are they willing to articulate this as opposed to we're trying to draw fair maps and show the Republicans the model? Yeah, more fuck you, less diplomacy. Peter is King, that... come on, anytime. Yeah. Seriously, Peter King's a very slip into the DMs, Peter. Not a great guy, but in, um, you know, and he's like the, the guy who hates Al Qaeda but loved the IRA. I mean, loved the IRA. Like how how much did he love the IRA? A lot, all the way. <laughs>